Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We sing there of God interposing the precious blood of Jesus between He and our sins. And God calls us to confess our sins as we come before Him in praise and worship. Romans chapter 6 is our call to confession this morning. Romans 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you then have in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. The catechism this morning is going to remind us that God is fair to punish us for our sins. When we sin, we want to do it. We want to go against God. And that leads us to slavery and to death. God's justice to punish that sin and his mercy to put it on someone besides us met at the cross. God does not just say, oh, never mind, we'll just forget about it. No, a just judge would not say that to a convicted murderer or rapist. And we have committed cosmic treason against our God. But God lays our sins on Jesus. And he calls us, when we confess our sins, to do the same. We're doing two key things in this moment. One, we're presenting our sins to God, admitting that it's true, we are sinners. And two, we're placing our sins upon Jesus. So this reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Let's turn back in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. A little bit of overlapping here. Last week, I think we read through verse 7 or 8. And go back to verse 5 and pick it up there. Remember, Nehemiah was standing before the king. And the king asked him what he wanted when he told him about Jerusalem being in ruin. Hear now God's infallible word. Nehemiah 2, verse 5. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, 
I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. In this passage, Nehemiah plans and leads Jerusalem to rebuild itself. And this is the plan for us as well. God calls us to see our situation clearly and then plan and resolve to reshape our lives as needed. That's the sermon in a nutshell, just in case my voice goes out. <laughs> so now I'll try a little bit more, and then we'll see if we get that far. You see the outline, the five points there. Uh, I just kind of took the plot bit by bit, what happens first, second, third, fourth, fifth. First, we have uh, specific plans and requests, and I want to point out the specificity of them once again. I did this a bit last time, but Nehemiah, remember, has been praying for four months it's been four months since he heard that Jerusalem was in ruin, and he has not had an opportunity to bring this to the king until now. Again, you don't just bring what you want to the king, you wait for him to ask in this uh, monarchical kind of system. But Nehemiah, in the meantime, has formed a plan. Notice, verse 5 is the bumper sticker version, rebuild Jerusalem. And the king wants details. How long are you going to be gone? I think that's verse 6. Nehemiah offers the specifics. So one thing to learn here is leaders know how to have the specifics ready and when to offer them to move ahead with a plan. Nehemiah has a plan ready. He knows the political situation. He knows there are provinces around Jerusalem that need to know that Nehemiah is authorized to do this. Nehemiah knows the financial need, and he knows the need of physical resources. We're going to need large beams to build a strong city. He, Nehemiah knows the city of Jerusalem itself. He knows what needs to be built. There's a fortress next to the temple that, within the city that needs to secure the temple. There's the city wall itself. There's a house for him to be safe himself as the governor. 
Nehemiah knows a lot about the situation. He's been reading the paper. He knows his people. Uh, he's engaged with what's going on. Uh, I find the part about him building a house for himself to occupy interesting. Uh, it, it, think of the president today. It's, it's not megalomania for the president of our country to provide himself with a secret service, with security measures in the White House, right? There are bad people out there who are going to come after him. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He's planning like that, very specific, very um, practical measures. Uh, we've taken similar steps here as well in recent months uh, to make sure that we are safe, that we're secure as we worship the Lord. Uh, now, so there's specific plans like that that we can take, can make. Now today, uh, because of my voice part, partly, I'm just going to go straight to Jesus at the start here. Uh, like Nehemiah, Jesus also wanted to do good for God's people. Who better to do it than one who knows everything about us? Nehemiah knew a lot. Jesus knows everything. And it's true that in his human nature, uh, there were times that Jesus spoke of not knowing some things, right? But God the Father had planned every day of the life of Christ. And at the end of his ministry, Jesus tells his disciples what was coming so they could prepare, right? Quote, the Son of Man will be delivered up, put to death, and will rise again on the third day. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. Right? Jesus is constantly going on ahead, carrying out his Father's plans and will. And he knows it specifically. Uh, so uh, some application on that. I'm, I'm just going to uh, give you a lot of the application and then we'll walk through the rest of the text. Uh, so if you are uh, going to do good for God's people, for your family, for this church... You're going to have to think ahead and plan a little bit. And some of that has been happening in, in this congregation very recently. And I'm quite excited about it. Let's get specific. Uh, three things. Number one, the ladies want to meet together. They know they need to meet together, as Titus 2 implies. Well, that's going to take someone leading, getting the group to a consensus on what to do. Do we study a book? Do we learn a skill? Do we just talk? Well, why not alternate all three? Well, what book should we use? Well, two good options get raised. Well, let's start with Face to Face by Steve Wilkins, someone decides. We're making specific plans, see? Uh, Wilkins, by the way, is one of the founding friends of the CREC. He's a pastor in Louisiana. Uh, he now has cancer, uh, so do keep him in your prayers. His insights on friendship and hospitality are just gold. Uh, but someone needs to plan the specifics. When will we meet? Well, let's try Wednesday evenings. Where? All this needs to be planned out so that we have a plan. That's one idea. Second, the men want to get together. They know they need to get together. Malachi 3.16 says that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They made a plan. They, they, they forged an alliance for strength and encouragement. I think last Sunday was a good start in that, talking about our budget, our plans to grow, how to give. So we're starting a men's forum, which we've done years in the past, uh, so that we as men can discuss issues of the culture that affect our families and the church. And I, I have a very specific format in mind for that, which I've seen done in the church before. It works quite well. 
Uh, just as the ladies can involve their older daughters as much as practical in the, their meetings, the men can bring their sons too, which helps expose them to the hearts and minds of other faithful men surrounding them. So that's the idea of a men's forum. Specific plans being made here at this, in this church, uh, just as Nehemiah made specific plans to build up God's people. Third, this applies especially to the home. Uh, parents, what are you planning to get done at home? This is critical and very important. I realize that sometimes you're in seasons where you're just treading water 90% of the time. That, that happens to all of us. But you need an aim. You need a purpose. Uh, one of you recently uh, shared a program helping you to clarify that. Who, who am I aiming to be as a man of God, as a husband, as a father, what does that mean I need to do specifically when I'm home? Husbands, I think, are often tempted, I, I know because I'm one of them, to be satisfied if they get through their work day without catastrophe and they get home and they find that the family chaos is manageable and then everyone just kind of crashes and plays and goes off and maybe pops in a movie, right? There are times, uh, I would argue, instead of that, to assemble your families, Mom or dad need to lead and make that happen. Hey, we're going to gather around the word of God now. And if, if the kids are little, you do that for three minutes or, or as long as you can get them to listen quietly and you work at extending that time. You lead them in prayer. You teach them to pray. These are specific plans we can make as leaders of God's people uh, to build up God's people. We want to do good for our people for your family, for this church. So we're going to have to think ahead and plan a bit. This is another aside. I think this is one reason God gives us a Sabbath, one day in seven. The Lord's Day is a great time to, to rest, to stop all the busyness, and to consider your life and to make plans. It's a great time for that. Uh, so uh, this is one step in building up faithful families and churches, making specific plans. The book of Nehemiah has a lot more of this kind of thing to come. Uh, so uh, we'll continue looking through that. So, so I gave you pretty much all the application right up front there today. So now as long as I can last, let's walk through the rest of the text. Verses 9 and 10 next. Those specific plans. Now he goes. I went to the governors. So he's, he's making the trip. And he's meeting with the, the nearby governors along the way. And what he's doing is he's informing those who are affected by these plans that have been made. It's a good general principle to inform those affected by a new move ahead of time. Notice that's kind of what I just did, right, with the church meetings, that kind of thing. We're wanting to communicate ahead of time what's coming, what the plan is. I think that some of these governors probably didn't care much they're living further away. I got that, got that sense from the text. They're, they shrug their shoulders and say, okay, nice to meet you, Nehemiah, new governor of Judah. Great. If the king wants to carve out another province or city there, it's no skin off my nose. But it was a problem for Samballot, who probably ruled and oppressed Judah until now. He's the governor of Samaria. And that's going to create a problem. All of a sudden, Sanballat has lost territory that he was taking advantage of. The principle there is, when God's people lead well, they take territory back from Satan 
and they rule justly instead. They provide for people kindly instead of Satan coming to kill and steal and destroy. More on this in verse 20 if we get there. Inform those who are affected is, is the principle. I remember just a very personal example of this. Uh, I remember sitting our kids down when we were living in Virginia, telling them of our plans to move here and that we were going to leave our home of 12 years. That was a memorable moment. And some of them said, okay. And some of them said, finally, about time. We need this. And some of them said, but we just made such good friends here. There's all kinds of responses that you get when you make a new move and make new plans from your people. And a good leader responds lovingly to each different response. It's very important. If dad, if dad decides to start gathering his family around the word, sometimes mom or the older kids will say, it's about time. But sometimes they'll say, I've been watching the kids all day and now we have to corral them some more? And dad says, yes, it's worth it. This is the plan. And then he listens to her wisdom to adjust the plan if needed. Sometimes his plan's a little crazy, needs some adjusting. But then he helps her to do the plan. That's the idea. Inform those affected. That's partly what Nehemiah is doing here. He arrives at Jerusalem. Now we have verse 11 through 16 is the next section. And he surveys the situation. Right? So he arrives there, and again, he's taking his time. Remember, four months back in Persia before he gets to make his move. Now he gets to Jerusalem, and he takes three days before he does anything. I find that interesting. What I glean from that is that he's getting settled before he makes big decisions, which is always a good idea. I just saw on Facebook this past week, Chris Wiley, I listened to him on the Theology podcast quite a bit follow him on social media. He had a great post. He said this, bad times to make a, good, a big decision. There's two bad times to make a big decision. Number one, after a drink on an empty stomach. Exaggerated confidence. <laughs> Number two, lying awake in bed at 2 a.m. Exaggerated fear. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there are, there are times you don't want to make big decisions. And so Nehemiah takes his time. He objectively looks at the situation. He sees what's wrong and what needs fixing. He goes and does this survey, spends quite a bit of time on that, pointing out that he's just doing this by himself, just getting the lay of the land, right? The walls are crumbled down. The gates are burned. it's, It's really like I heard, and he sees it himself. Now, I'm sure you can see some application there. Uh, From God's point of view, think of it first. Think about the catechism's description of our sin and misery, right? There's there's a spiritual meaning to this. And it's very important for us to keep considering the state of our sin and misery before God redeems us. Uh, So we get a glimpse of God looking down on a humanity in ruin from the fall. He surveys the situation. Right? In Genesis 6, right before the flood, he literally does this. 6 verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? He, and, then, and so he makes a plan to deal with that. 
In, in that case, the plan is the flood, right? But the point is, there's, you're surveying the situation. In families, in churches, parents and leaders should be surveying the situation, uh, shoring up what's crumbling, repairing the ruins. What needs to be fixed or improved here? I find it fascinating that in our country, uh, the founders provided in the Constitution for the president to give a report to the Congress from time to time, it says, on the State of the Union. That's surveying the situation. That's what they were trying to do. Interestingly, it has turned into this brag fest, right? My administration has done this and this and this, and now I'm going to do this and that and the other thing. The State of the Union is strong, right? It's a constant ritual, but it isn't. It isn't strong. And every year the president comes on national TV and says, we're doing great. It's no wonder we're in a mess. Nehemiah does the exact opposite of those State of the Union addresses. Number one, he doesn't talk about what he's done at all. I'm looking at verse 17 now, 17 and 18. Number two, he says they're in trouble. We're not doing great. Number three, he doesn't tell them how he's going to fix it. He calls on them to build the wall. This, this is why I had to sing Rise Up again. This is going to be kind of the, the anthem of the Nehemiah series. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Rise up, O men of God. Bring in the day of brotherhood. This is how we build the church. Rise up, O men of God. The church for you does wait. Her strength unequal to her task. Rise up and make her great. This is Nehemiah's stirring call. I got a little ahead of myself there. Verses 17 and 18. This is communicating the problem and the solution. Right? Nehemiah points out the trouble. Remember, by the way, that they've been like this for decades, right? So Nehemiah arrives, the walls have been broken down for decades, and his first meeting with everybody, he says, you see the trouble we're in, it's kind of ironic almost, almost a little sarcastic, I don't think they saw the trouble they were in, they didn't see what was wrong, and if they did, they hadn't taken action to fix it. I'm going to pause here for a, a general principle of pastoring and counseling. That, that's very important for our self-awareness. All of us prefer the familiar to the better. It's a natural thing we do. We prefer the familiar to the better. We get used to our dysfunction and our sin. And we would rather stay how we are, since we've survived this way so far, than make changes for the better, which would launch us into unfamiliar territory. Very often people do this. I've done it myself plenty of times. I, I know that, that changing myself in this way is going to be better for me, but it's unfamiliar and I've, I'm okay how I am. That's what Israel, Judah, has been doing. Nehemiah, good leaders, get their people out of the familiar into the better. 
It's very important to do at critical moments. And the way to do that is what Nehemiah says. Don't just point out the problem, but have a solution ready. Right? Think of all that Nehemiah brings to this meeting with the people the first time in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the distress we're in. Come, let us build. Verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God upon me, the king's words. Nehemiah has a specific plan. Build a city wall, the temple citadel. Nehemiah has the resources. He's got the budget. He's got the building supplies. He brought the timber on the wagons with him. Nehemiah has the king's authority to do it. And most of all, Nehemiah has the good hand of God upon him. He tells them all of this. And then he says, let's go. In my house, we, we have a saying, don't be a problem finder, be a problem solver. Right? Because a lot of times you walk around and you whine and complain. How come this isn't? How come? Blame somebody. Don't just find the problem. Find the solution for the problem. That's what Nehemiah has done here. Uh, many people on, online, social media, that's what they're doing. They're problem finders. And they rant and they even maybe make a good living finding fault with other people. And sometimes they're even right. <laughs> right? I, I, as I wrote that paragraph earlier this week, I thought of the Daily Wire. I think they're a great example. They're often right. But very often, all they're doing is seeing a problem. What's the solution? We are not just here at Christ Church, a fellowship of the aggrieved against the woke here. We are that. But we are doing more than gathering to express anger at the culture's celebrating of biblical atrocities. Good leaders see that trouble and then turn and build something better, something more faithful. That's what we're after. So Nehemiah communicates the problem and the solution. And he gets, uh, and he's successful into verse 18. Let us rise up and build, they say. And they set their hands to this good work. What a great line. There are times when things are, are going well among God's people. And everyone's pitching in and the building is happening. And it's, it's glorious to see. So that's what Nehemiah gets started. And then you have the opposition. And this is the last point today. Sanballat the Samaritan. The word is Horonite. Uh, we know, though, from um, chapter 4, verse 2, that he leads the army of Samaria. He's the governor of Samaria. And this is why I had us read 2 Kings 17 today. That background is critically important. Sanballat is a Babylonian name. His sons have the name of Yahweh in their names. So it's very likely that Sanballat is one of these syncretistic worshipers. He worships Yahweh on, on Saturday, and he worships um, Bel on, on whatever the other day is. That's what he's doing. At best, he's compromising with the world. And it's important to see these Samaritans. This, this history flows right into the New Testament. It's important to see that. These are the Samaritans, like the woman at the well Jesus meets in John 4. Like the good Samaritan in the parable. We, we, we label it capital G good, capital S Samaritan. That they had no category for that. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. Your 
syncretistic worship makes that not able to happen. Today, it's very easy to spot these people, given the syncretism. They are the progressive woke that go to a liberal church, if they go at all, with the coexist bumper sticker on their car. Those are modern-day Samaritans. They petitioned to get Proposition 3 passed. They were for it. They say love is love. People of our convictions have a natural repulsion to them, just like the faithful Jews did to Samaritans back then. Because of this long history, going back to Sanballat, back to 2 Kings 17, there's reasons for it. So please, reread John 4 and the Good Samaritan with this in mind. Realize how shocking that was, that Jesus would stop and talk to a Samaritan. What on earth? There's a lot to learn in that, especially for our cultural moment. The cliche of polarization is with us a lot, but it was in Jesus' day too. The Jews and the Samaritans were extremely polarized. They wouldn't even pass through each other's land. Red state, blue state. We're in the same world. It's astounding. Anyway, uh, back to this. Um, Nehemiah was right to turn Sanballat away because he derided and opposed faithful building for God and for God's people. Jesus was right to invite the Samaritans to himself on his terms, doing his will. You see how that fits together? It's not like Old Testament, New Testament, where Jesus is preaching a different message than Nehemiah now. No, 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 no. There'll be a lot more of that to come in Nehemiah. We need to remember that. Jesus was right to invite them to come. If they come, we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. When the Samaritans come in among us and profess Christ and start asking how to live for him, we need to love our neighbor. And that's, that's where Jesus quotes that second greatest commandment. And then the, the, the self-righteous scribe says, wait a minute, probably not wanting to love the Samaritan, says, who's my neighbor? And so Jesus tells the Good Samaritan parable, in which the Good Samaritan is the one who does the loving at the end, who was the neighbor to him. You see what Jesus is doing. Who is my neighbor? Not just my fellow Jew. Anyone who claims Christ and builds for him. Anyway, I got off kind of on a tangent there. Um, opposition. Sanballat is the opposition here. And it's important to keep this in, in mind. Um, it's, the opposition is clear in that he wants this project to fail. Right? But I'm a balanced, nuanced guy. I, I want to be careful that we get this all right. Think of it this way. There's other opposition that we have on other theological issues. Take uh, uh, old earth creation, for example. Right? A lot of Christians believe the earth is millions and billions of years old. Um, in the CREC, we tend to say, you can't believe the Bible and believe that. The Bible is quite clear that it's, that there's, it's a very young earth. That's a wrong view. But how drastically wrong is it? 
Is that on the same level as voting for a pro-abortion candidate? We have to make careful judgments and alliances, I think. And on this uh, Sunday, that's Sanctity of Life Sunday, I think it's good to remember that an, an alliance of Protestants and Roman Catholics for the last 50 years helped to bring about an end to Roe v. Wade. There are times to not just write off people because they don't think exactly as you do if they will fight with you on one front. Uh, to up that ante even a little bit more, humanly speaking, Roe was overturned largely because of our last president's Supreme Court appointments. And he was a very, is a very flawed man morally. But he delivered for the pro-life cause in this case. Very much like Artaxerxes delivered for Nehemiah. So, uh, when you start thinking about opposition to what the church is doing, there's lots of different layers and levels you want to consider. Uh, that's all different, though, from what Sanballat is trying to do. He's a foreign governor trying to get God's people to stop building the church. And that cannot stand if it can be helped. Right? Again, that, this is our world today. The, the leaders of China and North Korea and Iran all have sand ballots in charge right now. And they're stopping the building of God's people. But Nehemiah had the authority of the king to do this. And so he used it well. Some uh, teachers in the church say we should never use authority like that. I don't think that's the case. If we have the opportunity, we ought to use that to build up the church. Well, uh, just in closing, uh, there's going to be times uh, um, that opposition to God's will arises in your life. And that time will often come right when you resolve to build. Right when you've got some plans and some enthusiasm. Uh, Satan will often seek to sabotage right at the beginning your building project. And that opposition will come from the world, the flesh, the devil, whatever it may be. Uh, but you have the authority directly from our Lord Jesus Christ to make disciples of the nations. That starts with you, with your families, with your churches. Uh, to stand, like, think Ephesians 6. We have the authority, we have the call to stand with the armor of God upon us and to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Opposition is going to be there that we're called to resist. Nehemiah prays, he plans, he pleads to rebuild Jerusalem. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided for us uh, plans and a purpose. That you've revealed that to us. That you've given us a savior, a cornerstone of the church that you are building that will prevail. We pray, Lord, that you would give us strength in our weakness. Uh, give us faithfulness uh, where we uh, have fallen in the past. Help us, Lord, to rebuild the ruins. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word. And we sing as he taught us to pray. Just Nehemiah 2.18 once again for the communion meditation. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. One important point I didn't get to in the message. All of this building that Nehemiah starts could not have happened without the good hand of God upon him.
It's God's favor that really changes things. It makes us think and do things we wouldn't otherwise do. Nehemiah asks the emperor to go from cupbearer to Judean governor. Who would have thought that? Artaxerxes gives him authority, and he gives him a truckload of timber along with it. We are at this table because God's favor has been upon us. Why was I made to hear his voice, we sing sometimes, and enter while there's room, when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? God gives you the desire and the ability to build, to be faithful. Once you have it, we often want to build a thousand times more than he has given us resources. We even sing that, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, right? But you only have one tongue. So we also need to learn to be content to receive Christ with just one mouth. Build one life, one family. It's a big enough task. And this bread, this wine are meant to show you both atonement for your sin and strength for that task. So come, for all things are now ready. We invite you to the Lord's table, all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So come and welcome to the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.